0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Today we hit on a major part of Christian Muslim relations on the peninsula, an event that rivals many others that define the topic, but few include in the overall retelling of the last thousand years. It's a major fork in the road, and my imagination couldn't help but be pulled in the various directions that history could have taken following. Alfonso's capturing of Toledo in the year 1050. Now, our protagonist for this stretch of the story, Rodrigo Diaz, or El Cid, will not really be present. But don't worry, he'll be back on the next episode, I promise. Today is about something larger than the largest man on the peninsula, and it's the kind of thing, regardless of the immediate outcome, that is necessary for legends to develop. Today's episode, episode 69, is entitled, El Cid, Part 3, The Battle of Sagrajas. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As we heard in the last episode, and I think it bears repeating here to start this one off on the right footing... Richard Fletcher wrote in his book, The Quest for El Cid, quote, The fall of Toledo sharpened the focus of discontent, end quote. Now, from the parias, or protection money, paid to Alfonso VI to the terrible taxes imposed on the people of the Taifas in order to pay for those parias, well, Muslims around the peninsula had just about had it. And again, as we know, al Mutamid, the emir of Seville, had already reached out to that growing band of Berbers across the strait a couple of times, before already, for a little assistance in dealing with their encroaching and increasingly oppressive Christian neighbors to the north. Eventually, with the steam rising in the kettle that was Iberia, well, the steam has to go somewhere. In 1086 to 1087, just as things are heating up in Toledo under Cisnando Davide's and his bull-headed new bishop, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, and his entourage of Berber zealots sailed across the Strait of Gibraltar, and landed somewhere in the Taifa of Algeciras, before moving on to Seville. Now there, Tashfin would meet with the lords of nobility of various Taifas, including Seville, Granada, Malaga, Algeciras, and Badajoz, among others. This was more or less a. Secretive meeting, but come on, you can't land an invasionary force and not expect to draw a little attention. Though this isn't the first time on a Iberian soil, this could be said to be Tushfin's first major step onto the peninsula as a full Almoravid presence, a presence that would see, spoiler alert, many more decades there. Though at the time, as Fletcher suggests, this wasn't Tushfin's ultimate goal in 1086, that is, taking over al-andalus and bending it to his almoravid will chronicler Abd allah wrote that as fletcher put it quote, when critics of the taifa rulers approached to complain to him yusuf would say quote, we have not come here for this kind of thing the princes know best what to do in their own territories and all quotes now this kind of thing can really only be translated as invasion and conquering, but this would not always be the case with Tashfin. There will come a time when he doesn't have such a cool attitude toward such suggestions. After Ibn Tashfin heard the complaints against their Christian overlord, that is, Alfonso VI, he made his demands of men and began strategizing. Each taifa, fit to his own supplies and forces, contributed to the joint campaign, and a jihad, or holy war, was called. Muslims had had enough of sending their money and their allegiances to those northern Christians, and they were calling the faithful to their side for a showdown. Now, Simply declaring a jihad resulted in more coming to Seville and pledging their support. Along with the Almoravid forces, which were hefty enough as they were, the taifas of Seville Badajoz, Malaga, Algeciras, Moron, Granada, Almeria, Lisbon, and Muslim holdouts from Toledo all joined the cause. Al-Andalus, it was on the move. Ibn Tashfin literally moved his forces northward toward Castile by way of Badajoz, strategically on the opposite side of the peninsula from where his Christian foe was stationed at the moment. King Alfonso VI of León and Castile was in 1086, currently laying siege to his own suzerainty straight east several hundred miles. See, the Taifa of Zaragoza was at a crossroads of sorts. Its emir had allied himself with the Christian exile Rodrigo Diaz to lay waste to the Christian kingdoms of Aragon and Navarre to their north as retribution for their recent invasions into Zaragozan territory. Though under the protection of Alfonso VI, they still moved against these kingdoms, also more or less under the thumb, or influence, of Alfonso against his wishes. So, well, retribution was to be expected. Alfonso couldn't possibly have his underlings fighting amongst themselves at will, could he? But the problem here was actually already mentioned. Rodrigo Diaz. Rodrigo, as I said, was at that time working for the Zaragozan Emir, And Rodrigo had pretty much ingratiated himself into the largely Muslim Zaragozan society quite nicely. He was celebrated wherever he went and was treated pretty well by the nobility there. And it afforded him the opportunities to build a hefty reputation as both an enemy and a friend of Christians and Muslims alike. He simply fought where he was told as long as the money was right. And Zaragozan money seemed to be pretty right for much of the mid-1080s. Well, Rodrigo Diaz, through all of that, was still an exile from his Christian home up north, despite the fact that he was employed by one of his king's vassals. And as Alfonso VI approached the capital city of Zaragoza to lay siege until it became compliant to his expectations and demands, the emir of Zaragoza would pay Rodrigo Diaz to lead the Zaragozan forces. It was a strange set of circumstances, but that's how it played out. There were no hard feelings, well, other than Rodrigo feeling like he'd been wrongly exiled. But it seriously came down to the paycheck, and Rodrigo was very good at what he did. And Rodrigo kept Alfonso's forces at bay. Until one day, word came of a large Berber force landing in Algeciras far to the south. Another day soon after came word of that large berber force moving into or moving on to Seville seemingly not engaging militarily at any point so far strange strange behavior a few days later another word came a bit more panicked that other small muslim bands were all moving towards Seville as well where this larger force of almoravids had set up camp and then word came of this Force, all one force at this point, organizing and moving north. Now, that's from the Christian perspective of things. And this was when Alfonso was forced to make a very serious decision, continue to punish the Zaragozans for their disloyalty, or pull his forces out of Zaragoza and head west on a course of interception. The motives of this Almoravid, Andalusian army were still fairly unclear, to the Christians at least, but it didn't take a military genius to realize that it wasn't good. Typhas, just a month ago under Alfonso's thumb were now coalescing into a much larger North African force. Whatever it was, it wasn't a peaceful march north. And though Alfonso's Castilian forces were a stout presence on the peninsula, as we know, This new amalgamation of Muslim fighters seemed like something he should be taking very seriously. In fact, it was time to call in as many people as possible. Prior histories, be damned. Now, as Fletcher stated, quote, Just as the Taifa rulers had been urged by Yusuf, in Ibn Allah's words, quote, To agree among ourselves, to cooperate with one another, and to close our ranks, end quote. So Alfonso set about mending fences in the winter of 1086 to 1087. This brought about, uh, this brought Rodrigo Diaz back onto the Castilian scene, end quote. Now that last part in Fletcher's quote about mending fences in the winter of 1086, 87, and about bringing Rodrigo back into the Castilian scene, that jumped ahead just a little bit, but I want to kind of, I want to rein it back into just before Um, October of 1086 here. Now, this had instantly become less about pride and honor, or even about suzerain and suzerainty, and more about Muslim versus Christian. It's a key point here in the 1080s of Iberia. Now, in light of what came to be collectively called La Reconquista, we can't forget about Alfonso's father, Fernando I, who wrote back to an appealing Toledan emir stating that they they here, being Muslims in general, should just go back to where they came from, that is, back across the strait and onto the African continent just a generation earlier. Now, it was hardly about religion, but at the same time, religion played into this whole Andalusian 11th century storyline here. It's a weird relationship, but but here, in, in the 1080s, it very much became about religion. I mean just look at the word jihad. It's a holy war that uh, Yusuf ibn Tashfin and the Amoravids called upon their uh, Christian neighbors. Now, in Al-Andalus, there was for a long time a sense of superiority over their desert-dwelling Berber ideological brethren. And to the Christians in the north, well, there was always a little enmity toward them as well. They were seen as barbarians, in, in a sense. Their languages were strange. Their methods of worship were far stricter and, shall we say, less developed than their, their proper Andalusian cousins, their, their cultivated Andalusian cousins, we could say. their civilized cousins, I suppose. Yusuf ibn Tashfin and his Berber Muslims came from beyond the pale of civilization, from, in Moroccan terms, the bled-es-siba, that is, the lawless land beyond the atlas. So why trust them? Why appeal to them and invite them over? Again, the Andalusians were in a real bind. Iberia had become a crucible for Islam, forced by its own governance over the preceding 80 years and the emergence of a vengeful Christian presence in the north. In the end, Fletcher writes, Final negotiations were opened with the Almoravid leadership, in the winter of 1085 to 1086. Now, by October 1086, both the Almoravids and the Christians were on the move, the Almoravids pushing through friendly Badajoz, trying to get as far north as they can, before heading into Christian Toledo, and Alfonso VI abandoning his siege at Zaragoza, consolidating his power while on the move to his west. See, a battle... It was inevitable at this point. There would be no negotiations. Blood would be spilled. The questions were only where and when. The battle that ensued is historically known by two names. The Battle of Sagrahas, which is the Christian name of the place where they met. And the other name is the Battle of Zalaka, which is the place name according to Muslim sources. Similar enough, Zagrahas and Zalaka, so let's not quibble, but I'll be calling it Sagrahas for clarity's sake. Now, we know already that Yusuf ibn Tashfin had brought over his own force and folded smaller taifa forces into it, creating a, a pretty stout army with which to contend. But taking a look at Alfonso VI's forces, he pulled all of his soldiers away from Zaragoza and called all his remaining knights and countrymen to his side on his way through Toledo to meet the North Africans near Badajoz. Now, during this time, as we know, he was sending letters out appealing for assistance as well. And one of these were to King Sancho of neighboring Aragon, who sent a solid army of reinforcements to Alfonso's side. So, the following information about the battle itself didn't come from the books I've been researching. In fact, here are some quotes from the couple books I've been using to give you an idea of how little, in book form anyway, I've been able to find. Oh, and before we do that, spoiler alert, Alfonso VI quite literally gets his ass handed to him at Sagrajas. Okay, in the book Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain by uh, Brian Catlos, he says the following about the Battle of Sagrajas, quote, having received word that an invasion force from, mu- from Muslim North Africa had landed in Al-Andalus, Alfonso broke off and hurried south to suffer a near-fatal defeat at the hands of the Almoravids at the Battle of Zalaka, Okay, not much, right? And in the book The Quest for El Cid by Richard Fletcher, it states, quote, It was while he was supervising the siege operations at Zaragoza that disturbing news was brought to Alfonso. An enormous army from North Africa had landed in southern Spain. The invaders were heading northwards, apparently intent... On the reconquest of Toledo, they had to be headed off. The king mustered his forces and moved southwestwards. The armies met at Sagrajas, or Zalaca, near Badajoz, on the 23rd of October, 1086. There, Alfonso VI, the conqueror of Toledo, was resoundingly defeated. End quote. Okay, a little bit more, but still, just an overview of what we've already talked about on this episode. And as for the Ornament of the World by Maria Rosa Menikau, the Battle of Sagrajas isn't even mentioned. So the best sources I could find are from a couple really great creators on YouTube, so that's where I'm pulling the following information about the battle. But I encourage you all, just to give credit where it's due, I encourage you all to check out these channels, which are The Real Crusades and Flashpoint History. Some pretty great channels there. So here we are. The date is October 23rd, 1086, which was a Saturday. Instead of grilling out some burgers and hot dogs on a tailgate with friends before heading into the stadium for some Saturday afternoon college football games, now these two forces met just northwest of the city of Badajoz, near the modern border between Spain and Portugal. Alfonso brought to bear around 2,500 soldiers, consisting of around 750 heavy cavalry, 750 light cavalry, and the rest, ground troops, about a thousand of them. But for every one Christian soldier in Alfonso's lines, Ibn Tashfin bought three of his own. Each army faced each other, the Guadiana River, the only thing separating them. Now, smartly, Ibn Tashfin put the Taifa soldiers up front in the vanguard. I mean, it was their fight, not his, right? And he kept his own Almoravids back with him. Alfonso similarly put his Aragonese cavalry, a mixture of both light and heavy, mind you, in his vanguard, and lined up his Castilian cavalry, again a mixture of heavy and light cavalry, right behind them. So each side had two lines, and the the taifas were in the front of one and the Aragonese were in the front of the other. Alfonso's infantry stood far back near their camp, maybe a little overconfidently, I suppose, while Ibn Tashfin's Berber forces all stood back as well, behind a shallow ditch. Now, at first, Alfonso's Aragonese cavalry decimated the Taifa forces, sending all but the Seville army running away. The Sevillians stayed only because their own emir was there to keep order, But the cowardly retreat of the other Andalusians would actually serve as a boon to Ibn Tashfin's overall plan. You'll see that in a moment. Sweeping in from behind were Alfonso's Castilian cavalry, but I doubt that was the actual plan. See, when the Taifa forces ran away, the Aragonese vanguard abandoned the battlefield altogether and gave chase. Well, this caused Alfonso to send in his own cavalry, that second line, to fill the gap that was left. Now, at this point, Alfonso might still be feeling okay, as this second Castilian line was punching a hole right through the secondary Muslim line, the one defended by that shallow ditch. Now, watching from a nearby hillside, Ibn Tashfin grabs his reserve North African forces, as well as his elite forces that he had with him, and they came charging down the slope to the Castilian left flank. Well, also on the left flank were the remaining civilian soldiers who joined the flanking maneuver as well. So Alfonso's cavalry had now two fronts to worry about instead of just one, which was the one in front of them. And by 1086, this very battle-hardened Berber army was heavily disciplined through their decades of fighting, and they kept an orderly formation from the first step to the first clash of weapons with the Christian left flank. Now, Ibn Tashfin then ordered the group to the Castilian right flank, so his opposite flank, to run an end around. Now, it kind of it's almost like a running back spin move or a stiff arm to outmaneuver the hefty lineman in order to get out into the open ground behind the defensive line and make a breakdown field, speaking American football, that is. Now, Ibn Tashfin's orders, this small force on the Christian right flank, opposite him, was to storm the Castilian camp, and it worked like a charm. As the sun crept lower toward the horizon that afternoon, Alfonso called his forces back, but that's no easy task. Running backward while fighting forward, it's darn near impossible, I can't imagine. Oh, and and then there's that river, remember the Guadiana River? to cross again while running backward and fighting forward. Alfonso VI was immediately put on his heels, and as he rushed back to defend his camp, Ibn Tashfin and his Muslim forces pushed forward with him. Over the river and nearing the camp, the Aragonese cavalry led by Alvar Fanez rode back into view, so they'd already dealt with the the Taifa soldiers that have run away earlier. Well, they're riding back into view and now seeing the bloodbath on the battlefield, but see, they're only seeing it from the point of view behind the Muslim forces at this point because the Muslim forces had already pushed Alfonso's forces back to the camp. See, seeing that bloodbath from behind the Muslim forces, Alvar Fanez, he assumed the worst and he fled the battlefield altogether. Like for good. Now noticing the Aragonese fleeing, this cavalry that could have given the Christians a good bump of support, especially if they were able to come in from a flank or from behind the Muslim forces, therefore thereby pinching uh, Ibn Tashfin's forces. Well, he's noticing them fleeing, Ibn Tashfin knew that this was the time to strike the hardest. He ordered his forces to work in unison. Very similarly, to how, going back to American football, how offensive linemen work to create openings in the defensive line. Each group along the Muslim offensive line began pushing outward. And by outward, I mean that if you, if you were left of center, then you pushed forward and out left. And if you were right of center, then you pushed forward and out right. And if you were in the center, then you just pushed straight ahead. This will loosen the connections between parts of the defensive line and allow for your running back to charge through the line, ideally untouched. In Ibn Tashfin's case, this created two major openings in the defensive line, one on each side of the force uh, right dead of center. Ibn Tashfin ordered his elite force, called the Black Guard, into each opening, each of the two openings crashing into the infantry station back Uh, behind them at the camp still. So at this point, the jig was up. Yusuf ibn Tashfin reacted to an unexpected and ever-changing battlefield, as only a seasoned veteran of conquest could. Unlike his opponent, who had merely led raids and any conquest he'd come across was really a blip on the Almoravid radar at this point. What was happening in Iberia was simply nothing compared to the warfare and conquest that occurred in North and West Africa during the 11th century. Looking at it from a thousand years, Ibn Tashfin's victory was almost a foregone conclusion. If I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, then I'd stake everything I had on the Almoravids in this battle. But not so much in conquest overall, because there was one figure curiously missing from the battlefield on October 23, 1086. When Alfonso VI pulled his siege forces away from Zaragoza, one man was left there and he was enjoying a massive celebration in his honor for his efforts in successfully holding off the Castilian army during a pretty rough siege. Rodrigo Diaz, el campeador, had not come to his king's call for help. It would have been like Generals Eisenhower or Patton sitting out of World War II for the Americans. Things just wouldn't have proceeded in the ways they did, because oftentimes superior strategy far outweighs superior numbers. So as the sun drifted closer and closer to the horizon that afternoon, surely casting that calming pink-blue of the late-afternoon sky, you know, Alfonso ordered a hasty retreat, attempting to regroup with as many uh, of, of his men as he could. But the Muslim Berbers were simply too much, and they ended up breaking through, in that maneuver I mentioned earlier, through the cavalry lines as the order to retreat swept up and down the Christian ranks is chaos. This breakthrough happened so quickly and so unexpectedly that Alfonso VI was caught up in a little of that fighting himself, suffering an injury to his lower leg, an injury that researchers would discover nearly a thousand years later as a nick in his his left leg's bone, lending credence to the rumor that Alfonso VI walked with a limp in his later years. I love it when researchers can, can dig up something and notice and kind of maybe back up something that was written about in Chronicles from a thousand years ago. It's, it's very cool to me. Now, Alfonso VI was able to escape, just barely, and he pushed his forces quickly back to Toledo, where he gathered resources and regrouped. But he also prepared for a Muslim attack as well. So as Alfonso settled in for a long siege he apparently misunderstood the actual carnage he'd just witnessed firsthand. As his leg tried to heal, he no doubt suffered nightmares about the bloodshed and loss of life there just a handful of miles outside of the city of Badajoz. But that bloodshed and that loss of life, staggering though it no doubt was, wasn't all Christian bloodshed and Christian loss of life. In fact, the Almoravids and Taifas all suffered a massive blow that day as well. I mean, you wouldn't think so due to the, as Fletcher put it, quote-unquote, resounding victory, you know, uh, and the ways that chronicles from both sides portray, or in the case of the Christians, simply skip over it. But this Muslim for- these Muslim forces were in no shape to give chase after Sagrahas. And, I guess it makes sense that Christian sources would just, you know, slip right past this battle, but because it it was a severe blow, really, to the resurgence of Christian power in Iberia's 11th century. No need to dwell on the bad stuff, right? But as for Muslim sources, they reveled in the brutality and the glory at the Battle of Sagrahas, or Zalaka, to them. Accounts offer details such as Tashfin, ordering all Christian dead to have their heads chopped off completely, loaded up into carts, and sent to all Taifa courts in Al-Andalus, celebrating their victory. Another detail is the nickname Muslim chroniclers gave to this to, to history, and this is where the battle's name itself comes from. Now, I mentioned it was a place earlier, and that was a slip-up. See, there wasn't an actual place outside of Badajoz, called sagrahas or even zalaka no in fact sagrahas is the anglicized version of that word we mentioned earlier zalaka and zalaka comes from the muslim word for the battle itself which is which they call marakat az zalaka zalaka meaning slippery ground slippery ground yeah muslims report that the ground was so soaked with blood, Christian and Muslim blood alike, that soldiers on both sides were slipping and falling as they fought. You know, as if they were fighting in the middle of a hurricane. It's hard to imagine such brutality even exists, but unfortunately it does. And I have an admission to make, actually. I I lied. (laughs) Earlier I said that Richard Fletcher's book, The Quest for El Cid, just mentioned the battle once, really. But the brevity of the mention was the point to make there, or the lack of mention, I should say. He does circle back to it when he writes the following a few pages later. He says, quote, Sagrahas, one might say, was Alfonso VI's Manzikert, end quote. Now we'll discuss Manzikert in due time, I promise, but suffice it to say that Manzikert did to the Byzantine emperor in 1071 what Sagrahas did to Alfonso VI. In 1086. It wasn't a good look for either battle, or after either battle, for the Christians, and it resulted in a massive blow to Christianity's hold on both Iberia and Anatolian highlands way out east by surprisingly adept Muslim forces on both sides. Okay, so Fletcher continues: quote: The significance of events which historians call decisive is rarely perceived at all quickly by contemporaries. Yusuf's intervention and the Battle of Sagrajas in 1086 form a case in point. The lengthening of Yusuf's shadow over Al-Andalus was to be a gradual affair, not a sudden one. As for Alfonso VI, the defeat was humiliating, but it did not bring him to his knees. It invited a riposte. It highlighted the vulnerability of Toledo. Just as the Taifa rulers had been charged, or excuse me, just as the Taifa rulers had been urged by Yusuf in Abd Allah's words, quote, to agree among ourselves to cooperate with one another and to close our ranks, end quote. So Alfonso set about mending fences in the winter of 1086 to 87. This brought Rodrigo Diaz back into the Castilian scene, and Fletcher's quote. And that's where we'll leave it for this episode. Alfonso VI was dealt a devastating blow, both to his numerical forces as well as to his reputation. Simultaneously, just the opposite happened to his opponent, Yusuf ibn Tashfin. Though ibn Tashfin was forced to retreat back to North Africa afterwards and regroup himself, again, he took heavy losses as well, his legend began to grow among Muslims across the Islamic world. Word got out of Sagrahas just like it did about Manzikert. Both Alfonso VI and Yusuf ibn Tashfin weren't finished with each other yet. And Rodrigo Diaz, already by 1086, a literal living legend. Well, Rodrigo Diaz was about to make his biggest mark on Iberian history yet, if you can believe it. These are the times that create legends, and these are the legends that define their times as well. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Iberia's 11th century and I hope you're just as excited to hear the next one as I am to share it with you all. Stay safe, stay well.